This morning we're going to start Hebrews chapter 1. And the last time we finished up Habakkuk, and what was really neat was I had some come to me and tell me where their life was in terms of what chapter in Habakkuk uh, that they were in. You know, Pastor Joe, I'm in, I'm in chapter 2. I'm not quite in 3 yet. Some have told me they were in chapter 1. But you've got to get the message to understand what we're talking about. There was three chapters in Habakkuk. And today we're going to jump in Hebrews. And as always, before we start a new uh, letter or book, we want to give you an overview. So when did it take place? Well, the letter was written sometime between A.D. 64 through 68, just before the fall of the temple system, the walls of Jerusalem, you know, the, the temple, etc., at the hands of the Romans. Remember the Roman-Jewish War of A.D. 66 through A.D. 70, and that's significant. We'll come back to that. Who was it written to? It was written to mainly Jewish believers who were really the first Christians. And we're going to find that as we read this book, this letter, uh, it's probably going to challenge some of our preconceived notions. And as I look out this morning, I see my Jewish contingent here this morning, and I know you're really going to be blessed by this. Uh, why was it written? Well, because the Christians were starting to receive from some persecution, especially Jewish believers from not only the Roman government, but their own families. Uh, and some of them were looking for security. They were struggling. Uh, and they figured that if they could go back to practicing Judaism, practicing the temple sacrifices, etc., that it would give them you know, a little bit of relief from persecution. What they didn't know at the time that the letter was written is wasn't but a short amount of time before all that was going to be wiped out by the Roman government. Okay? And that's significant as well. Just as a butterfly can't go back to being a chrysalis because the world is persecuting butterflies, when you're complete in Christ, there is no turning back. And the author is trying to encourage them here right, to stand fast, to, to stay with what they knew, what they learned, what they became. And let me just say this this morning, that some of you uh, may be new believers, some of you may be believers for maybe a few years, and you're struggling as well. Maybe you're getting persecution from people that you know. Maybe you're going through trials. And maybe the temptation as well is to give up, is to give in because of it. But the truth is that you already have wings. You can't undo what you've done. You can't go back to where God is. You know, God has already brought you somewhere. There's no going back to the things that brought you to where God has you today. You know, there's no going back in time. Once you're completed, you don't go back to the uh, beggarly things, so to speak, or the fragmented things. All right? So why do we study this? Well, this is a remarkable letter. I'm going to give you three main points that this book or this letter is going to bring out, and then we'll jump in. Number one, Hebrews is a false doctrine terminator. It rips up any false doctrine. And we, as we go through this, may say, gee, I've always been taught that in church, and I guess that goes out the window. Yes, that might happen as we go through the next few months of the letter of Hebrews. It's very challenging. Number two, it may cause your life to be changed. I know for a fact that some Churches have made decisions not to teach this on a Sunday morning because it's too weighty. As a matter of fact, it, it didn't help matters when I called a fellow pastor to talk to him about a few things, and I said, he, I was in Hebrew. He goes, what? You're in Hebrews? He goes, that, that's pretty heavy. And I said, well, yeah, I'm running out of New Testament books to teach on Sunday morning, so you know, I saved kind of Hebrews and Romans for the end. But um, you know, it's, it's pretty weighty. 
and three, if you don't believe, if you've walked in here this morning and you don't believe, you're not convinced that Jesus is deity, that he's God. You're not convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, then you've come to the right place because I believe this letter is going to challenge you and it's going to use a lot of references from the Old Testament. Uh, there's a phrase that I've heard, uh, you know that you're doing it right when you can lead a Jew to their Jewish Messiah through the Jewish scriptures. Because it's all in there. It's all about him in the Old Testament. Uh, the New Testament is just a revelation of the Old Testament. This is a controversial letter in Christendom, not because of its authenticity, but because of its explosivity. Now, who's it from? Well, it's, I guess you could say it has, it's a polyonymous author, basically an author who goes by different names. Uh, you know, many people have different reasons for why they think it's this author or that's, that author. Uh, I believe, as many others do, that it was the Apostle Paul. And you may say, well, why didn't he sign his name? Well, the Apostle Paul was a, a great rabbi. He studied under Gamaliel. Uh, he was very learned in, in, in the things of, of Judaism. He knew his Old Testament like memorization. And he fought really hard to get his brothers and sisters, his Jewish believers, to understand the Messiah. And he didn't mince words. And he had a reputation. And he felt that if they knew, maybe if they read it and they knew it was him off the bat, they might have boycotted it or not read it. Again, it's just speculation, but I think it's a, it's a good speculation. Now, I may say at times through this, uh, the Apostle Paul says, uh, smile, chuckle, raise your hand. Uh, I can't help myself. I assume or I, I put the Apostle Paul with this letter, although it is authorless. So I will forgive me if I do that. I'm going to try not to do that. Lastly is when we get to chapter 13, you've got to make it through to get it there. Uh, basically, some of, the authors, some of the author's readers knew who he was, and we'll get to that point. So at least some of them knew who was writing this letter. And I would say this as well. For an authorless book to get into canonized scripture is pretty impressive. That's how powerful this letter is. In reality... In reality, it isn't authorless anyway. As with all sacred scripture, it's authored by the Holy Spirit. So it really all comes down to that anyway. So the Christ in Hebrews, I always say that. What's the Christ in this book? Or where is Christ in that book? It's all over this book. So I'm, I can't even point to one particular. It's, it's everywhere, as we'll see. So you all ready? All right. <laughs> so Hebrews 1, starting in verse 1. God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's pretty powerful. So the first thing we look at in these three verses is Christ's superiority over the prophets. Now this is important to the Jewish mind because the prophets were all over the Old Testament. The prophets were the ones that when they were struggling, they would look to the prophets for some words of encouragement and hope. And the Messiah was always woven through those prophetic uh, books but it's also important to us today, whether we're Jewish ethnicity or Gentile ethnicity, because of false doctrine. 
There's a big movement today for uh, guys to run around with titles. I'm the church prophet. I'm the prophet for today. You know, they're so obsessed with, with these titles, prophets, governing body, magisterium. You know what the Bible says? Listen to Jesus. Right out of the gate, listen to Jesus. See, right, it's, no, we're not even five minutes into this, and I'm sure I'm going to offend somebody. But it's based on his word. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you'll follow my word. So how do we know if we love him? If we're not reading it all and we're not taking it in and we're going to a church that's a social club? We don't know. But Jesus said, if you love me. And that should give each one of us in this room pause. Do I really love Jesus? Well, do I love him according to how I want to love him? I think fondly of him. Or do I love him because Jesus said, this is how you love me? When we're in a relationship, you know, we can, as guys, we can just give our wives flowers all the time and leave the garbage overflowing and the kids undisciplined and the house falling apart and say, but I love you, I give you flowers all the time. And the wife is saying, this place is a mess, it's chaos in here, help me out. Well, it's also a relationship with God. Jesus tells us what determines whether we love him or not. We've got to follow his word. So that's great. You know, you meet people today who claim to be prophets and all these uh, important positions, and Jesus says, just follow my word. Just do that for me. All right? We have to listen to Jesus. Be careful of looking for experience, titles, fanfare, power at the expense of being obedient to God. See, here's the problem with mankind. God makes things too easy. God did all the heavy lifting, right, with his son going to the cross. So he asked very little of us. He asks us to worship him. He asks us to read his word. But we're, as, as men and women, you know, no, it's got to be something more. There's got to be something more that I can contribute. God's saying no. It's very simple. I've done the heavy lifting. Verse 2, in these last days. What last days? This was written almost 2,000 years ago. Well, the dispensation of grace. How do we know when that dispensation of grace runs out? For those of you who are more advanced in the scripture, we go back to Daniel. Right, we go back to his vision of the 70 Shavuah in the Hebrew. Uh, 69 Shavuah have passed, and then uh, you know, the Messiah came, and then the clock stopped temporarily. You got one more Shavuah, which is a seven-year period, that when that starts up again, that period of grace has come and gone. That dispensation has, has run its course. And now we're going back to some heavy stuff in the book of Revelation. So we are in that time period. We are in those last days, so to speak, according to the writer of Hebrews. Now, the word heir means also translated sharer or possessor, through whom the Father, right, made the world or the universe and all creation. It came through Jesus. Remember when we covered the Gospel of John 1, 3, that everything that was made wasn't made unless it meant, went through the Lord Jesus, right, before his incarnation. He was always God. Now, for those who have never learned true Christology, or the study of Christ, this is going to be an eye-opener. Right? Remember, Jesus wasn't some hippie who came a long time ago who had a carefree attitude and just kind of smiled when we sinned. That's not what he came to do. He came to bear the full brunt of my sins and your sins so that we could have everlasting life. It's sobering. It gets better. It says that he's the brightness of God's glory, his effulgence or his radiance. The scripture says, don't steal the Lord's glory. Don't try to touch his glory. Don't try to take any of God's glory. And here, Jesus is that, he's the brightness of that glory. He's God's radiance. He's the express image, number two, of the person of God. 
which also means the exact copy. He is God, who upholds all things by the word of his power. I'm going to turn to Colossians 1.17. Just going to read one verse about Jesus. And we covered Colossians. It says in verse 17, Now some, some believe or some teach, which is not true, that Jesus was a created being. And we're going to get into the word firstborn and what that means. Verse 17, it says, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. The Greek word is sunastao, where we get the word is sustained, is literally held together. And every time I read that, I think of the strong nuclear force within an atom. Right? You would put things of what we were always told, you take like charges and put them together and they repel. They're repulsed by each other. They're too similar. Put negatives together, they repel. Put positives together, they repel. However, inside of an atom, uh, uh, you know, positive charges get together real nicely. They all kind of hang out one ball with the neutrons while the electrons are kind of whizzing around on the outside. Scientists can't explain how that happens, protons. Um, they can't explain how it happens, but they put a label, the strong nuclear force. Well, it has to be really strong to hold that nucleus together. Understand? Anywhere else they would come apart. Now, when we do nuclear fission, the atomic bomb, it releases an incredible amount of energy as those uh, charge, those, those, uh, the nucleus is hit with neutrons and then it starts to come apart and becomes unstable. And you get this incredible blast and release of energy. But it says, in Jesus... All things sunastao. Everything consists. Everything is held together. All the atoms in our body, we have so much energy in our body. But we're held together by a force that's unknown to scientists. But according to the scripture, it's known to God. Pretty impressive, isn't it? I love mixing science with the Bible because the stuff, you know, I can get into all kinds of things and I'm, I'm going to get back to where I'm supposed to be right now. So let's do that. <laughs> Hebrews tells us that the Lord purged our sins by himself. He did it himself without anybody's help. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He completed the job he set out to perform. Now you know why this is important? Because nothing can be added to the Lord's sacrifice. How many times do you follow a religion or go to a church and they tell you that, that, that they have to be a part of your salvation experience? We don't have to. You come here because you want to hear the word. Um, apparently you're here because you must like the way I teach. But the bottom line is you're looking for the scripture. You're looking to be built up in the world, in the word. I, I don't contribute to your salvation experience. That's between you and the Lord. We help you. We facilitate things. But it's ultimately, you know, if this church was destroyed and everybody scattered, you could still be saved. You still are saved. You see what I'm saying? So some of these religions teach, yes, well, Jesus did a great work, but... Be careful of the but, the disassociative conjunction. It's going to bring you to another place. But you have to follow us to maintain your salvation, or you have to do this to be saved with us. No. Jesus did it by himself. He didn't need my help. He didn't need your help. He didn't need anybody's help. He did it by himself, the Bible says. Verse 4. Having become so much better than the angels... He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 
But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, to the son, he says, get this, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? That just has to be broken down. But what we see here is verses 1 through 3 was Christ's superiority over the prophets. Now, to the Jewish mind, angels were also very important. If you read the entire Old Testament, angels play a, a prominent role. They're messengers, they do God's bidding, they appear to man, they protect man, they minister to man. So to the Jewish mind, th this, is, this is important. So we've got to talk about the angel issue and Christ's superiority over the angels. On a side note, the good angels always point men and women to God. Always, bar none. I, I remember in Revelation 19 where... The Apostle John is being led by this angel. He's being shown the visions of the revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, just reading the book gives you the chills. Imagine actually being there with the angel, being guided through all these visions. So you got to, you know, I want to say this to give John a little, little, um, a little grace here. John falls down in Revelation 19 at the feet of the angel, and he says, "You got to," and, and the humility there. He says this in his word in. in in Revelation, he wrote it. He says, I fell down to worship the angel. Big mistake. And the angel said, see that you do not do that. The angel was really tight about that. Get up. I'm your fellow servant. You know, give worship to God alone. So the angels always point man to God, never accept worship. They don't say, hey, you know, John, I'm really not appreciated up here that much. And, you know, it's really nice that you did that. You know, just stay there for a little while and when you compose yourself, come back up and we'll finish the tour. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say to John, you know, I got to say this. This is the party line. You know, the big guy is always on top of us to produce, to produce. This is the party line, but let me tell you what I think. People do that. It's divisive. It's twisted. It's rebellious. But the good angels always know to point men to God. So let's see the difference between angels and Jesus. Because Jesus does accept the worship, and we see that many a times in the gospel. I'm going to list six reasons, or actually the writer of Hebrews is going to list six reasons why Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. So let me read four again. Having become so much better than the angels, as he, by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels did he ever say, quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you, end quote. And again, quote, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So the first thing that we see is that Jesus Christ is the son. He's the son of God. Now, 
Son of God is a much more excellent name than Gabriel or Lucifer or any of the other angels that we read about in the scripture. He has a more excellent name. He's the Son of God. Some may say to me, well, Pastor Joe, in the book of Job, it says when the sons of God came before you know, the Lord. Ah, we, we got tripped up here. No, we didn't. Because sons of God very rarely is used to speak about the angels collectively. But no individual angel ever has been referred to as a son or the son of God. So see the difference there. Uh, that's a distinguishing factor that can't be overlooked. Now, it says, today I have begotten you. This is where we're going to get into some words. Begotten, firstborn, heir. And I'm going to explain some things about that and how we look at that and what the true meaning is. In Psalm 2.7 this is where this is pulled from. If you have a study Bible, as I do, uh, the words that are quoted in the Old Testament or from somewhere else in the Scripture, italicized. And then you have a little footnote next to it. So in Psalm 2-7, you know, as Pastor Paul did on Wednesday night, today I have begotten you. Check this out. In Acts 13.33, the Apostle Paul, Luke recording Acts, he's recording the Apostle Paul speaking in Acts 13.33, he focuses this act where God says, Today I have begotten you to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? So, begotten really to mean to establish and to honor, not to, to have birth. That doesn't, you know, there was no physical childbirth and stuff when it came to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not that type of understanding. And the second part of this comes from 2 Samuel 7, where in, in prophecy, uh, the Messiah's line is spoken of, David's line is spoken of. When we actually went through this on Wednesday night, not too long ago, it was a little heavy. You know, in prophecy, God can speak about something right now, something in the future, come back to the present, because he sees everything at once. For us, we have to kind of make sense of it, because we see in linear time as human beings. Uh, verse 6. But again, he says, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So the second thing that we see is that Jesus is worshipped by the angels. God brought the angels to the incarnation when, um, in the manger scene when Mary was going to give birth. The angels in Luke 2 all came. And they told the shepherds, look what's going on. This is so exciting. You know, this is prophetic. Uh, and, and, you know, they, want, he, they wanted the shepherds to go over there. And they're rejoicing and they're worshiping. And there's a whole symphony of angels. And then they go back and they go into heaven. And the shepherds come over to see and worship the Lord. Remember, angels never worship each other. That's important. As a matter of fact, that's what got Lucifer kicked out of heaven. He had this bright idea that all of a sudden he wanted to be worshipped. Now, sometimes when I read this stuff, I think, I wonder what it was like being there when Lucifer had this great idea. You imagine the other angels going, man, have you lost your mind? Keep that stuff down. Somebody send them for an evaluation. But he got kicked out of heaven because he thought it was a good idea that he finally get some appreciation and get some worship. Only God is worshipped. Now, Jesus is called the firstborn. This is important because if you've ever talked to the Jehovah Witnesses, they'll use these words. Every word in the English cannot be parsed into its component parts. Let me give you an example. The word butterfly is not a fly made out of butter. Okay? 
So firstborn, when they read this to you on a Saturday morning, they come into your living room, because I've had it happen to me, they will trip you up. And I'm going to explain what these words mean. David was actually called the firstborn in Psalm 89.27. Write that down. Check that out another time after service. But he's speaking about David as the firstborn. However, the Bible says that David was the lastborn. Remember when Jesse was going to pick out, or when, um, when Jesse's sons were going to be picked out, the next king? David was the last one that came in. Now, Psalm 89.27 calls him the firstborn. The word firstborn in that context means to be preeminent or to be first in rank, even though he was born genealogically as the last son. So Jesus, as the firstborn, is the one who's the preeminent one. Now, this is where this stuff comes into to view, and uh, it's amusing. I've had this discussion with different pastors about uh, some who are so staunch on King James only. You know, some churches, this is the only inspired version. That doesn't make any sense. Because we go into the Greek and the Hebrew, which helps to bring out those words of the, the archaic language. Um, what happens is the... What happens is, maybe he's calling me or something, I don't know. <laughs> the King James only is basically just in the monarchical period, uh, somewhere around the 15th century, 15th, 16th century, uh, the Bible was translated from uh, Greek and Hebrew into English. But however, back in that, those days in, in Europe, we spoke very differently than we speak now in the United States. So later on, the new King James was to take a lot of that flowery language that we don't use anymore to make more sense of it for our culture. But what do they do with every version? They go back to the Greek and the Hebrew and retranslate it. It's not like telephone. So these words, um, heir, begotten, firstborn, really are looked at a lot of times in a monarchical view, which the King James was translated in. So, but when we go into our language, we don't understand that stuff. So it's retranslated, although the uh, translators try to keep some of the integrity of, of the King James. Bottom line, I'm going to give you the, you know, if you have a, an e-sword, you can do a free download to your computer, and you can look at these words, all right? So Jesus wasn't born, and God birthed him. Jesus always was, and his name means salvation. So I hope that kind of helps that uh, a little bit there. Verse 7. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So the third point that we see here is that Jesus is ministered to by the angels. You know, there's a priority. There's roles here. Um, we know that angels serve God. They do his bidding. And we saw in through the Gospels a few times on the earth when the angels ministered to Jesus. Uh, Matthew 4.11 and Luke 22.23. Even while Jesus was in the form of a man, the angels were still ministering to him. Prior to the, Jesus coming through the, the line of, uh, you know, th through Mary, and he always was, the angels ministered to him in heaven. When he was born as a, a man, they ministered to him as a man. So nothing's really changed there. Scripture reference, Psalm 104.4.8. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So the fourth thing that we look at is that Jesus is considered God. 
No bones, no mincing words there. Uh, he has a throne. Scripture references Deuteronomy 33, Psalm 16, Isaiah 61. And it's kind of interesting with the, therefore God, your God. Now we know there's only one God, but they both deserve that title and they are the triune nature of God. Three in one, not three separate gods. A little hard for our finite minds to grasp, but if you think about it, we are uh, body, mind, spirit. We are, there's definitely a separation. And as Christians, when there's a temptation that comes up and we argue with each other about whether we should join the temptation or fight it, and we're having this war in our members, it doesn't mean we're crazy. It means we're normal. It means that the spirit is fighting with the flesh. And there's, we're, we're a composite being. And we have this struggle. Sometimes we're, we do well and we please the Lord. Sometimes we sin and we need to ask for forgiveness. Now, in God's sense, as three in one, they never argue. They're always in an agreement. It's, a, it's an echad, it's a united one, uh, according to the Hebrew there. But it says, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And if we look at the oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit, you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working there. Father anointing the Son with the Holy Spirit. So that's that. Um, anyway, in verse 8 and 9, Jesus is considered God. Oh, I'm sorry, let me go to the next one. Verse 10. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of breaks in here, and there's a lot of inserts if you have the study Bible with different verses, so it's a little hard to follow at times. Uh, verse 10, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. Fifth point, Jesus is also the creator. This is reaffirmed many times in Scripture. Scripture referenced Psalm 102, Isaiah 34, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 51. In verse 11, it speaks about, well, the heavens and the earth, really meaning the cosmos, really meaning the universe. Um, in some translations, it says the world, but basically all of God's creation. Verse 11, it says that it will grow old. And the Greek word is paleao, where we get paleontology from. The study of what? Old things, ancient things, things that could fall apart easy, decaying things. You know, I mean, I couldn't do the job that these guys do when they dig into the ground and they look for these artifacts. If they dig too hard, they could break this precious thing that they're trying to brush off and put into a museum. So these things are very old and very fragile. But I look at this in terms of the second law of thermodynamics. Everything goes from order to disorder. Everything goes from a state of, of pristineness upon creation to decay. Um, and that really only happened when sin entered the world. God made everything beautiful and perfect. But because of sin, this is the decay process that we follow now. Verse 12, it says, But you, here's the difference between creation and Jesus Christ. But you remain. You remain. Your years will not fail. You are the same. They will be changed, but you won't. This speaks of the Lord Jesus' immutability, he doesn't change, and his eternality. Now, this is only spoken about God in Scripture. And I say this, when we do a study on Christology, how do we know that Jesus is God? We put everything together. And we find that everything God claims for himself, the Lord Jesus claims for himself. He's either an imposter, 
he's a fake, he's a lunatic, or he really is, he's, he's God. Verse 12, he speaks about folding up the, the heavens and uh, basically creation, folding them up and replacing them with something new. We know that God will usher in a new kingdom, the Bible tells us, Revelation, a new heaven, new heavens and a new earth where everything's going to be beautiful, perfect, and pristine again. So he can take his creation, fold it up, put it aside, and make something new. Only he can do that. Verse 13, last two. It says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? The sixth and last point is that Jesus is looked at, or he is the king. Now, angels in a king's court, right? this is what's going on, is angels that are the servants in the king's court, which is the Lord Jesus, ministering to him. Again, relational and priority-wise. Scripture reference, Psalm 110. You know what's interesting? You never see angels sitting. Well, the father says to the son, sit at, my foot, uh, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Whenever we find angels, they're either standing, flying, or they're warring with each other. They're never sitting and hanging around. They're good servants to God, you know. Even the bad uh, ones are hanging around scheming, but you don't see them sitting. They stand to do God's bidding. Sitting on a throne with a footstool was indicative of a potentate or a sovereign or a king who was in control of his court. He had conquered the, the area that, he, that is his purview, that has established, okay? So that's what that indicates. Now, the one that says to minister, the angels minister for those who inherit salvation, that's us. That's us. I mean, Jesus, in a sense, did it for us. But angels minister to us. Remember Mary, um, Joseph, uh, uh, Daniel, John? Angels came and ministered to them, the ones who were inheritors of salvation. And this, some use this as a proof text for guardian angels. And there's a few scriptures, but they're minor here and there. Call them what you want. They minister to us at times. Maybe things happen. Maybe we're spared something and God just dispatched an angel and helped us out in some way or another. And we'll find out when we get into the kingdom. But this is what angels do. Here's the difference. Angels do really nice things for us and they minister to us, but Jesus died for our sins. Let me make two more points before we close. Number one, angels are created beings. Jesus is not. And we, I believe we've established that in the Gospel of John and we're going to establish that in Hebrews. Two, with verse three in mind, I would ask, to which of the angels was the plan to die for the sins of mankind given? And the answer is none of them. It was given to the Lord Jesus. As we, as we close, some of this is heavy. You know, some Sundays we're using a lot of application and we're, you know, we're moving through it pretty, pretty good. This morning we had to put on our thinking caps. You know, for me to study this, it was, it was difficult too. There's a lot in here. I had to go back and forth in the Old Testament and Psalms and put all these things together and see where they're, they're done with the Psalms and they're putting another Psalm in there and they're in Second Samuel, it's, you know, Deuteronomy 33, it's heavy. But why is it so important that we understand that Jesus is not just some dude who lived 2,000 years ago, that he's God? Well, the first reason is the gospel. The most important reason to us today because, listen, we die, people die. And if you've lived long enough, 
and you're old enough, you've gone to funerals, you've cried, you've shed a tear, you've lost loved ones. And death is a, a horrible thing to face. I don't care what background or denomination you're from, funerals aren't nice. They were never meant to be. Because of that, Jesus came to reverse death. Right? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? He came to reverse death by dying for our sins. He's the only one who could have done that. Oddly enough, I've, I've read things over the years that people have tried to um, associate with Jesus and have actually nailed themselves to pieces of wood thinking, I don't get what they're doing. But even if they did die, they couldn't die for anyone, let alone themselves, because they couldn't bear the sins of the world. But then I ask myself, what is the root? And I like to do this. I'm an investigator by nature. What is the root of the reason why people don't want to believe that Jesus is God? This is very, very crucial. And let's talk about this clinically, not assaulting anybody or not saying, you know, we should be winning people to the truth, not giving them a hard time. The first example, if Jesus is not God and he's just some guy, albeit a wonderful guy, great prophet, then we can be elevated as men and women. We can give ourselves big titles because Jesus is little. We don't really have to worship him. And our organizations can have big titles. Think about the Watchtower in Brooklyn who has all dominance over the Jehovah Witnesses. And again, just talking about this without emotion, I've had them at my house trying to win them to Jesus. And I, I remember one thing, it went on for months. One would come and I would say something that would stump them. They'd leave find somebody bigger to come and talk to me and then I'd stump them. They'd go back and they'd send an elder and these people were actually getting irritated coming to my house. And at one point, they had to go back to the watchtower and find the answer and all I said was, I'm just some dude sitting here with a Bible. God's giving me the answers right here. So that's the one thing. Man becomes big, the organization becomes bigger than life. The second thing that we look at here is we want a church maybe, some want a church where there's no arguments. You know, you come in, believe what you want. Everybody, you believe one thing, you believe something else. And I don't even, t I don't tell you guys what to believe, but there's in some churches where they foster this. We're open to all beliefs, yours. Unitarian Universalist, very similar to Jehovah Witness doctrine. Everybody can, you can be sitting next to a polytheist who believes in a million gods and it's okay. There's no arguments, there's no discussions, there's no conviction about your personal life because everybody gets along. Hey, that's wonderful. But you're not following the truth. Third one. And I see this prevalent with young adults, uh, a lot of these groups. And they're, they're huge, these groups. They're all a bunch of 20-something-year-olds. Why do they love this so much? Why do they love this doctrine? Because Jesus is a really cool dude to hang out with, man. Jesus isn't going to judge me. Jesus, when I'm doing bad stuff and I'm, I'm a hypocrite and you know, I'm sinning, Jesus is okay with it. I just kind of put him in the corner. Hey, Jesus, hang out with, with a can of beer. We'll be cool. I'll get you in a few hours. And I'm being facetious, but what happens is when Jesus, there's a million reasons why Jesus, people make Jesus little. Because they now become the masters of their own lives. They become masters of their own doctrine. They can live however they want, and that's not what the Bible teaches. There's no holiness at all. So these are the reasons, and I'm sure there's plenty more. I just love to get at the root of things. Here's the deal. When Jesus sent the messenger to the church of Sardis, Jesus told Sardis they had a dead church. However, Jesus spoke about all the great things that they were doing. 
Now, I would liken it today to somebody walking into a church where there's standing room only, people are parking on the grass, they have all kinds of technology, they have light shows, everybody's you know, standing and clapping in worship, everyone's excited. Imagine Jesus coming into that church and saying, you're dead. Now, the word for dead, there's different words. The word is used is corpse. He said, you're a corpse. Jesus is very good when it comes to clarity. That's not what we want. We want to be following the truth because otherwise we're just a social club. So bottom line is, Pastor Joe, why is it so important that we believe that Jesus is God? First of all, I'm not going to make you believe anything. That's your choice. That's between you and the Lord. But I think we've laid out just in the first chapter why it's crucially important to believe Jesus is God. Otherwise, we have to start taking books out of the Bible, ripping them out, putting them in the shredder, and we'll be left with a book this thin because we have to take out all the references to his deity. Very important. If you know somebody who wasn't here this morning, get them the CD, tell them to listen to it on the, on the website because in order to continue with this book, this has to be the foundation. There's a scripture that says this, or no, there's a saying that says this. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. I want to follow the true Jesus and the one who's Lord of all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, your clarity. We thank you for your, you know, just trying to get through all these different scriptures and, you know, we're, the case that you make through.